The following audio is from a sermon series entitled King Jesus, studying the life and work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord, Mark 3, 20-30. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons. He casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Uh, What we do here at Sacred City on Sundays is we preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. We're going through right now the Gospel of Mark, and we're, we're working all the way through it. And what this does, we believe Scripture itself says that all Scripture is God breathed. All scripture is profitable to teach us and to train us in righteousness. So that means every word that's written in this book is good for us and we need to know it, we need to understand it, we need to learn from it. Well, there's a lot of things in here that are hard to understand. There's a lot of things in here that when you're reading, you know you do, if you, ever, if you do read this, you just go, I don't know that, I skip over that, right? And you just jump it. Well, Preachers do the same thing, okay? Preachers do, you know what, I'm going to preach. Preachers always have their pet peeve. They always have their their things they want to stay away from, and they always have the things that they love. And it just comes out all the time, and they just want to preach on it every single week, right? They want to preach on the same thing, and they want to do series, and they want to stay away from the hard texts, and they want to stay centered on the easy text to interpret. Well, we can't do that. We don't think it's right to do that. Um, At Sacred Two, we want to preach verse by verse the books of the Bible. And today, we are at a text Um, that I would avoid. If I had the choice, I would avoid. Um, It's it's a hard text. Many of you have been probably, if you've ever heard of it before, you've probably been confused by it. And we're going to attempt to study it. We're going to attempt to see what God has to say to us in it. And I'm well aware, um, if you are a visitor here, or if you are new, or you are not a Christian, that this could this could be an offensive message. I'm aware of that going into it. So, um... I'm, I'm, well, <laughs> I'm running through a minefield, and I expect to lose a few limbs this morning, okay? That's how I feel. But let me go ahead and pray, and we're going to jump into this this morning. Uh, Father, uh, we call you Father because of what you have done. You have sent the Son, Jesus, your good, right, and perfect Son, to this sinful world, to this fallen world, to this world where death rules and death reigns. And Jesus Christ lived amongst us 2,000 years ago. He lived amongst us as a perfect man. 
And then 33 or 34 years later, he was brutally murdered, beaten, crucified, hung on a Roman cross. And your word tells us that he did that to pay the price of our rebellion, to pay the price of our sin, to satisfy the righteous judgment of God on our behalf. And he was resurrected three days later. And now he is seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenlies. And he sent the Holy Spirit to be with us and to inspire the writing of Scripture and to bring to our remembrance truth and to convict us of our sin and to convince us of the righteousness of God. And I ask and I lean heavily on the Spirit this morning and ask that you would give me wisdom, that you'd think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords, that you would hear through our ears, that you would bring clarity to this difficult text this morning because we believe it's good. We believe you're good. We believe you're all your word is good. And God, we live in a crooked world, a crooked culture, a crooked generation that calls darkness light, that calls crooked things straight. And we need your word to straighten us out. We need your word to give us light in the darkness. Would you do that this morning for your glory and for our good? In Jesus' powerful name, we pray. Amen. All right, so if you open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 3, that's where we're going to find ourselves today. And we're going to be in 10 verses. We're not going to be covering too much, um, but there's a lot going on. Now, I didn't get the chance to hear Sam's sermon last week. I was gone on vacation with my four kids and my wife. And we went up to, uh, we got to spend some time at an indoor water park up in Wisconsin Dells. My wife, the bargain shopper, found a great deal on eBay, and we went in and let the kids run our life for a few, four days, right? So we had a great time up in Wisconsin Dells. Um, so I didn't get to hear the sermon, but I did read his transcript, and I was, man, I thought it was great. Uh, Jesus chooses 12 meatheads, right? 12 apostles, these 12 wild dudes, every one of them. Uh, from the fringes kind of a society, and he brings them together, and he says he chooses only the ones he, that pleases, like he's pleased to choose. Like he, was, he invited these men into his inner circle, into his missional community, and what's he do? He takes these wild dudes, and he gives them new identities. He calls them into his family, his new missional community, and he says, this is who you used to be, but now this is who you are now because of who I am. I change your identity. So we know Simon, he says, Simon, you're now Peter. See, Simon, you used to be characterized by your petulance and your instability, but now I'm going to make you stable like a rock. That's what Peter means, a rock, right? And in other places, he's going to say, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. See, in Christ, this is what's offered to everyone who puts their faith in Jesus, not just a better life but a whole new identity, an identity that cannot be moved, it cannot be shaken, it cannot be taken from you, it's an eternal identity. See, we were all, as our catechism said this morning, we were all enemies of God because of Adam's sin and original sin in us. We were all enemies of God, but now, by grace, through Christ, we can be made sons and daughters of God. But what I love so much, and I'm just coming to love more and more as I study it, this book of Mark, it doesn't just, it's not just a long transcript of Jesus' greatest sermons, right? Sometimes you read, you pick up books from this author or so-and-so, and you think it's a book, but really it's just a long sermon, right? But Jesus 
in the book of Mark, that's not what he's giving us, okay? The book of Mark is about the person of Jesus, not just about the teachings of Jesus. I love how Mark shows us Jesus himself. And what we're seeing is that Jesus was highly controversial. I, I don't, it might not be an exaggeration to say that Jesus was the most controversial man in human history. So far, it's taken Mark three chapters in his book here to tell us that people are already plotting to kill him. Not just anybody either. Those who are on the far right wing of society, the super uber conservatives are trying to kill him and they're plotting with the far left-leaning liberals. They're all working together to kill Jesus. But most of us, I think, when we think of Jesus, do we think of him as polarizing? When, when you think of Jesus, do you think like Jesus, whoa, controversial? Or do you think he's kind of like this really nice, kind of bland guy, right? He's a teacher of peace and love that tries really hard not to step on any toes or to offend anyone. I think many of us were raised on this type of Jesus. It's kind of a byproduct of our society that we live in. Many of us learned of this Jesus from the fl- flannel graph in Sunday school. Remember the flannel graph? That little carpeted like board and you would pull the little Jesus and you would stick him to the carpeted board. Right? Remember that? And Jesus always had this permagrin, right? He always had this permanent smile on his face with perfectly kind of windblown hair and a perfect white dress, right? With a blue sash or something. And, and all of our Bible lessons in Sunday school, they were always what? Jesus is saying, let the little children come to me. I like to cuddle, right? He's always saying, do not judge. He's always saying, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, the golden rule. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus said all of those things, and he did those things. And they're all absolutely true, and they're a part of who he is. But those nice little bits and pieces and those nice little Bible stories aren't going to get anyone beaten within an inch of his life. Right? Look at how he loves those children. Hang them up and crucify them. Right? That's not going to get you killed. That's not going to get a crown of thorns pressed upon your scalp and pushed down into your head where you're bleeding. That's not going to get you beaten within an inch of your life. That's not going to get you stripped naked and put on a cross and crucified while everybody's saying, if you are who you say you are, come down off the cross. Jesus didn't get crucified for giving people the golden rule. Every society's had the golden rule. Jesus didn't get crucified for saying, letting the little kids come unto me. Jesus didn't get crucified for saying, do not judge. So more than likely, if you grew up in church, it's my perspective, it's my experience that if you grew up in church, you might have this picture of Jesus that's really one-sided and really one-dimensional and really boring, I'll be honest. That Jesus doesn't commend worship. Sentimental at best. Jesus was a really nice son of God who died on the cross to save people from their sins so that we could be really nice like Jesus. Unfortunately, I think this has lobotomized many of us. Our ability to think, our ability to see Jesus as he is. 
and then to understand how truly remarkable and how truly powerful he was has been damaged by this repeated exposure to the sterilized picture of Jesus smiling with windblown hair and children on his lap. To say it another way, in 20th century alone, between 300 and 500 million people died of smallpox. And how do we get rid of smallpox? Through inoculation. What's inoculation? You take a little bit of the disease and you expose someone to a little bit of the disease of smallpox and the person's body reacts and fights off the disease and then makes them immune to it. So by being exposed to a little bit of the disease, they be, their body works in such a way that it creates an immunity to the disease. See, I think many of us have had that experience with the real Jesus. We've been inoculated to the real Jesus. We've had a little exposure to him. Maybe one-dimensional picture of this smiling, nice Jesus that all of a sudden goes from playing with babies to dying on the cross. And we've been inoculated to the real Jesus. We're no longer in awe of him. We no longer fear him. And you're going to see that when the apostles, when they feel like they're dying in a boat, not today, but in the future, when they're dying in a boat, they will wake up Jesus and Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves stop. And they go, <gasps> they were more afraid of Jesus after he rebuked the storm than they were that he was, they were going to die in the storm. Why? They had this awe. Who is this that can speak such a way? Who is this can, that can control the wind and the waves? They were afraid of him in a sense. See, smiling, sensitive Jesus doesn't get the kind of reaction from people that the real Jesus does. So let me do a quick diagnostic test. We can all do this on ourselves. Does Jesus offend you? Does his lifestyle and teaching offend you? And I want to just straight up say, if you say, no, not really, then you don't know the real Jesus. You might know one dimension, of the one dimension. Now let me just say, whoa, just I've been in church my whole, I can feel it, I can feel it rising up. Let me just tell you, I'm a pastor, I'm a preacher, let me tell you how Jesus offends me, okay? Here, here's seven quick ways Jesus offends me. One, love your enemies. What? What? Have you ever been punched in the nose? It hurts, right? Turn the other cheek. What? Jesus, this isn't, you know, hyperbole. Jesus is serious when he says, love your enemies. Do any of us do that? Or do we watch the news, right? <laughs> we watch the news and we just say, kill them all. Bomb them. Smoke them out, right? Jesus says, love your enemies. That's offensive to me. Jesus says, hate your family. That's offensive to me. If anyone doesn't hate his own family, he's not worthy of me. Now, I could get into all this stuff. Well, comparatively, he's, comparatively speaking, our love for God should be so exuberant and over and above that our love for our families looks like hate in comparison. He still said it. Hate your family. That's offensive to me. Here's one. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. 
If a hand causes you to sin, cut it off. That's offensive to me. Here's one. Jesus, what do I do to be saved? What do I got to do? Here's sell everything, give it to the poor. That's offensive. Your PS4, yeah, sell it. He might be asking to do it. Your new car, he might be asking you to do it. He has the right to require anything he wants from you. We know this man, if you get into the story, this man worshipped his things. He saw his things as more meaningful to him and more uh, shaped his identity than God himself. We know it. When you, put, when you put God and things on the scale, does God go up or the things go up, right? We know that God is the most, has the most glory. He has the most weight. He should have the most pull in our life. But still, Jesus said it. Sell everything. I think in our society, that's offensive. What if Jesus told you to empty your 401k? What would you do? Here's one. Lose your life for my sake. If you lose your life for my sake, then you're going to find it. Lose, give up my life. Give up control of my life. Hand the reins of my life over to Jesus. I'm an American. I'm in control. I make my decisions. I determine my direction. I determine my destiny. Jesus says, lose your life. That's offensive to me. Jesus says this, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to God unless they go through me. That's offensive, that's narrow. All the, Jesus says, all world religions in the world are lies, are farces, are not true. I am the only way to reach eternity. I am the only way to have life and life more abundantly. I'm the only way to have eternal life. I'm the only way to get in on this worldwide redemption plan that Jesus is working at right now, making all things new, recreating the whole world and all the galaxies. Jesus says, I'm the key to all of that. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. That's offensive. And lastly, Jesus says, go make disciples. Well, how's that offensive? That's your life's work if you're a Christian. That's your calling, right? We struggle over what our major is going to be in college, right? Listen, you're not going to get to heaven and he's like, you chose the wrong major, you're out, <laughs> right? You were meant to be an engineer and you're, you're a doctor, get, right? No, but we are going to be judged on how are we making disciples. This is what we've been called to do. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all things that I taught you, right? That's what we're meant to do. Every one of us are meant to be making disciples right now in our life as an engineer or as a doctor or as a marketer. Whatever it is you do, you're meant to be making disciples of Jesus, your neighbors, you're meant to be making disciples. That's offensive. He, he has this audacity to put this claim on us to say, here's your life's work. Go make disciples. Fathers, that's what our job is with our kids. Go make disciples. See? Does Jesus offend you? If he doesn't offend you, you haven't met the real Jesus. Does Jesus rebuke you for your lack of generosity? Does he judge you for your sexual impurity or your lust? Does the Jesus you know, does he contradict you? Does he, does he send you your conscience and prick your conscience and say, nope, you can't do that? I know it would, be, it would feel really good to claim that on your taxes, but that would be unethical. 
Does he prick you? Does he poke you? Does he judge you in a sense? As we were going verse by verse through this book, I hope kind of every other week, you, I'm, this is my hope, maybe every week you'd be provoked or at least every other week because Jesus, the, the, how gracious he is with outsiders, how gracious he is with tax collectors and sinners, if you're a, more, if you're a moral, upright, church-going person, when you see that Jesus, that should confront you, that should challenge you, that should contradict the way that you live your life because you surround yourself by good church-going people most of the time. Right? So when you see that side of Jesus, that should provoke you. That should judge your lifestyle and say, I need to befriend the outsider. I need to be on mission like Jesus. But then today, if you kind of have, you know what, I'm a friend of sinners and I've got all kind of outsider friends and, and you know, but my morals are kind of loose and I'm kind of just do what I want to do and hey, it's all a grace anyways, then today's Jesus is going to provoke you. And they're the one, they're, they're one he, he doesn't have like, you know, it's not two sides of a penny. This is who he is. This is his person. It's meant to provoke all of us. Now, many people in here and many people in our culture, our neighbors and our friends and our family members and the people we go to school with, when we ask, does Jesus judge you? The answer to that question is no for them. Hey, Jesus judge me? No, Jesus doesn't judge me. God doesn't judge me. God loves everyone. See, this is the new mantra of our American society. Planet Fitness bases their whole business strategy on this concept. It's the judgment-free zone. There's no judging at Planet Fitness, right? My friends, some of my friends go there, right? If you're too loud in the gym, they pull an alarm, no being loud, no being aggressive at Planet Fitness. And I don't know if you saw it this week in the news, but the judgment-free zone was in the news. A lady from Planet Fitness walks into the women's locker room and sees a man standing there. She can't believe it. She's offended. She's shocked. So she goes and she files a complaint um, only to be reminded, hey, this is a judgment-free zone. So she takes the plane up the ladder and she goes to corporate and she complains, and she gets her membership suspended. Evidently, the judgment-free zone is the 11th commandment. Thou shalt not judge anyone, right? That's not the 11th commandment. I'm just joking there, so. We don't know our 10 commandments, so my bad. Listen, the, this, what happened? The man in the locker room self-identifies as a woman. The man in the locker room, the man in the woman's locker room was a transgender, He's anatomically male, but believes he's a woman. And I'm not speaking directly to that issue. I have, fri- I, I have friends who are transgender. I'm speaking to the issue of judgment. Listen, Planet Fitness says, because he identifies as female, he can shower wherever he wants to shower. Don't judge. This is a judgment-free zone. And the woman, for saying, there's a man in the locker room, she had her membership removed. Now, I want you to see what's going on here, the impossibility of a judgment-free life, of a, of a say, this is a judgment-free zone, no judgment here. I want you to see that that's an absolute impossibility. Planet Fitness judged the woman who judged the man because she's the one who had her membership revoked. Do you see that? 
See how illogical the no judgment zone philosophy is. Everyone judges. We have to. Everyone judges in order to live. We have to make judgment calls every single day. Is this thing good or is this thing bad? Will this decision I'm about to make lead to human flourishing and the glory of God? Or will this decision lead, uh, will it negate human flourishing? Will it bring about the destruction of human flourishing and it will make, look, make God look bad? And what we're going to see today is that we don't live in a judgment-free zone. And you can't have Jesus as your Savior unless Jesus is first your judge. And you might push back on that. Much of our culture does. But listen, this isn't nothing new to just our culture. See, every culture pushes back on that. Jesus' culture did as well. In our passage today, you're going to see Jesus' own mother and stepbrothers both call him crazy, and try to seize him. The text says seize, like he's being arrested. They're trying to grab him and get him back and restrain him. They say he's out of his mind. And then we see the scribes of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, say he's demon-possessed. Smiling, sensitive, do unto others, Jesus, doesn't get that type of reaction. Jesus, the judge, does. Now, I want you to look at our text. Chapter 3, verse 20. Let's read it together. Then he went home. Jesus has been ministering. Great crowds have been following him. When it says Jesus went home, um, his home, he doesn't have a house. His home base, most commentators believe, is probably Peter's mother-in-law's house where he first, where he healed her. That's kind of home base for ministry right now. Jesus comes home and look what happens again. The crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. Now, I've said this over, over and over, but I'm going to say it again. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, crowds are not a good thing. You don't judge your success by how big of a crowd you can gather. In the Gospel of Mark, crowds were always the people hindering real ministry from taking place, hindering from people getting to Jesus. Right now, we see a crowd pushing in on Jesus so much that they can't even eat. And look what happens. And when his family heard it. They went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Okay, first of all, I want to to mention one thing here. There's this new, it's not too new actually, but it's the last 40 years, but it's getting more and more popularity, Dan Brown novels and all this stuff that's coming out, that, you know, C.S. Lewis once said that there's three options with how you can deal with Jesus. Either he, because of what he said and how he lived, he's either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord, right? Well, there's this new kind of stance that says, no, 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 he, 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 you don't have to decide between a liar, a lunatic, and a Lord. Uh, the Bible's not accurate. The New Testament's not accurate. We've got other gospels and, that, that are more accurate that tell us different size of Jesus, that, that Jesus' followers fabricated the gospel account. And now let me just, that, that's just foolish, all right? It's foolish, it's not true, but let me just show you like kind of some internal evidence here that fights against that. If you were the apostles, okay, if you were the apostles, and one of the things that we wanted, like the early church kind of wanted, some of them wanted to venerate Mary, right? Like Mary's, this, she's amazing, right? So we want Mary to look good. We want, you know, your Jesus' brothers are apostles. One of Jesus' brothers becomes an apostle. He's writing the book of James. So if I'm putting together the gospel account, I want Mary and James to look good, 
right? If I'm one of the apostles or if I'm Jesus' mother and she's sitting around and the gospel is being put together, hey, hey, I, I want to look, don't make me look stupid. I'm the mother of God. Don't make the mother of God look stupid, right? Don't make the brother of God look stupid. But here in this text, what do you see? Here in this text, we see Mary and Jesus' half-brothers going, he's crazy. Jesus, you are out of your mind. We see them trying to arrest him, trying to grab him, trying to wrestle him and get him back in and say, stop teaching what you're teaching. Stop doing what you're doing. You are crazy. They literally see that because the authority of Jesus teaching, the stuff he's saying, how offensive he is, how they're they're trying to arrest him. So if you wanted to make yourself look good, if you wanted to shape the accounts around your own, you know, perceptions, you're not going to include this into the text. But it's here because it really happened. Jesus' own family didn't fully recognize who he is. And it's going to show us, listen, proximity to Jesus does not guarantee comprehension of who Jesus is. You could have grown up your whole life in the church. It doesn't mean you understand who he is. It doesn't mean you've grasped him in his fullness. It doesn't even mean you've grasped him in a saving knowledge. So, Let's keep reading. I'll keep going. And then the scribes, religious leaders, who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul. And by the, and that, that word, there's a lot, I could, I could talk to you, there's a lot of stuff that goes into it. Some people think it means the, the Lord of the flies. Some people think it means the Lord of the house, okay? It's, it's a term of kind of a ruler, right? And then you can see that he kind of gives clarity to it. And then his next sentence, by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons, okay? So stop right here. This is shocking. Nobody comes to Jesus and go, he's a phony. All those miracles, He's a trickster. He's a huckster. It's all fake. It's all phony. Nobody says that. Nobody denies his power. We see two responses to Jesus, and nobody goes, oh, yeah, I saw my cousin do that down the street. Not a big deal. Right? Nobody looks at Jesus and goes, oh, yeah, kind of boring, whatever. Nobody dismisses him like that. What do they do? His family goes, he's doing crazy stuff, but he, that's because he's crazy. Right? The scribes say, well, he's doing miraculous things because he's empowered by Satan. He's evil. So one says he's a lunatic. One says he's Satan. He's empowered by Satan. Do you see this? Now let's look what Jesus says. Jesus says, He called them to him, and he said to them in parables. So he kind of tells them stories. He says this, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. All right, the analogy of a kingdom. If the United States goes to war with the United States, that kingdom will be destroyed, right? Then he uses... The illustration of a house. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. 
Now listen. The people don't understand who Jesus is. And we got to ask ourselves, who are the people? His own family, those closest to him and those in the religious establishment, those who know the Old Testament scriptures, and they don't get him. Being close to Jesus doesn't guarantee comprehension of who he is. I meet many people who love a little bit of Jesus. I like about half of what Jesus taught. The other stuff I think is crazy, right? Give 10% away, tithe, give money to the church, that's crazy. Lay down my life for my wife, you don't know my wife. And my wife would say, submit to my husband? Who do you think I am, Mother Teresa? You're crazy. Share the gospel with my neighbors? Jesus, you are out of your mind. Live life in a gospel-centered community like Jesus did with his apostles? Ain't nobody got time for that, Jesus. Right? See, this is what we all do when we start to get close to Jesus. Many of us, we don't come to church very much because we know if we go there, we're going to get closer to Jesus and we might feel conviction or we might be challenged by him or he might prod and poke at something in our life. That's just too intense. That's going to cost me too much. Jesus, you crossed the line. You're out of your mind. Stop judging me. Be nice. Smile, Jesus. But Mark is trying to show us something really important here. When Jesus came, Jesus didn't come to do things the way that you wanted him to do things. He doesn't operate with our own sensibilities. And up until this moment, Jesus is really misunderstood. Let's just put that slide up. There's a slide I've got that's got some of just the things that people so far in the first three chapters, people have said about Jesus. Well, let's go to the next slide. Let's go to the next slide. (laughs) There we go. People, they've said, in chapter one, verse, or no, chapter two, verse seven, they said he's a blasphemer. In 2.16, they said, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? They're saying he's a glutton and a drunkard. 2.18, he's a fast breaker. Why doesn't him and his disciples fast? In 2.24, they're saying he's a Sabbath breaker. On the Sabbath, he's harvesting, the disciples were harvesting some grain. 3.20, now they say he has an unclean spirit. His own family says in 321, he's out of his mind. In 322, it says he is possessed by Beelzebul. He does his work through demons. This is the perception of Jesus at this time. This is what the people are saying about Jesus up until this moment. Those closest to Jesus and those in religious leadership are offended by him and they don't understand him. Now, let me ask you, how does it make you feel when you're misunderstood? Have you ever had a person call you crazy? Have you ever had a person at work say that you're lazy? Maybe, or that you're ruthless, or that you're stupid or incapable? It's amazing how one label like that can change the shape and direction of your life. I've, had, I've counseled many people, many women, who their mother... Uh, labeled them as promiscuous or as something along those lines as, as a young woman and growing up and eventually that woman says, 
if she's going to call me that, I'll do it. You're going to put that label on me, I might as well do it. And they just fall into that label and become that person. Labels have a way of shaping us, aiming our hearts in a certain direction. I think, don't we all have something inside of us that says, you know what, I just want to be liked. I want people to know me. I want to be liked by people. I want people to think I'm smart. I want people to think I'm successful. I want to be looked at as a good man who is doing good things for his family and loves God and serves his church and his city. But what happens when the approval of others becomes the most important thing in our life? See, it's really common to begin to build our life on top of our reputation. Many of our fathers might have said this, the most important thing you got, son, is your reputation. So if that's the mentality, I'll sacrifice money, I'll sacrifice relationships, I'll sacrifice what I need to sacrifice to keep my reputation intact. That's why, that's our foundation for our life, our reputation, what people say about us. That's why it hurts so bad when somebody throws a label on us. When somebody tries, they said he's lazy or he's not good enough or he can't make it or he's not smart enough or she can't do that. It pulls down that foundation that we've got. That label brings my whole life's foundation into question. But look how Jesus responds in verse 22. All right, let's actually, in verse 27. When they say he's possessed by demons, how does he respond? He says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. So first off, I want you to see, how did Jesus respond? All right, you're possessed by the devil. The first thing Jesus does, he goes, "Um, I'm possessed by the devil. I'm casting out devils, and I'm possessed by the devil. That's a failure in logic. How can Satan cast out Satan? Clear, cool, he's responding with a logical interpretation. That doesn't make sense, right? That doesn't follow. Satan can't cast out Satan, or he's going to destroy himself. Now, when somebody labels you, when they question your motives, when they say you're evil, when they say... Uh, you're backbiting or you're slam, whatever that label is, is that how you respond? Cool, calm, logical? Well, let me tell you why your interpretation is incorrect. Right? Do you respond with logic or do you respond with emotion? How dare you? I can't believe it. Do you know what I do for this? Do you- we respond in emotion. See, Jesus doesn't explode on these guys in anger. He doesn't go off on them and let his emotions run wild. How does Jesus respond? He doesn't, or he doesn't do this either. Because some of you would, oh, I would never explode on someone. I would never do that. I'd lock myself away in a room. I hide from the person. I avoid them. I unfriend them on Facebook. See, Jesus doesn't lock himself in a room and never come out. They totally don't get me. They're labeling me. They don't understand my motivation. So cut them off. 
Why? He doesn't say, I just can't go on anymore. I just can't do this. I can't respond. I can't finish this ministry because nobody understands me. I'm doing all this good work, but everybody curses me and everybody thinks I'm either crazy or think I'm evil. They think I'm bad and crazy. See, the key to understanding how Jesus stays in control and how he doesn't get ran over by his own emotions or then pushed into isolation by being rejected by those closest to him, the key to understanding this is not in what the people have said about him, but what we saw in chapter one, what God has said about him. Put that scripture up, please. The first one. Do we remember this? At Jesus' baptism, what did God say about Jesus? He said, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This was Jesus' foundation. This was the word that defined him. Jesus knew that. And listen, I'm not talking about a cognitive understanding. Many of you go, yeah, 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 Jesus, I'm loved and I'm forgiven by Jesus. If you do that, you don't get it. Jesus believed he was loved and he believed he was the son of God all the way down. He knew that God was pleased with him and what God said of him was true so that he could withstand the name calling and the animosity from nearly everyone around him. He knew it doesn't matter what anybody else is saying. Everybody else may misunderstand me. Everybody else may slander me, but I know what God says about me. I know that God loves me and I'm God's son. And Jesus, listen, this is what's shocking to me. Put, Put the next slide up, the second slide. So far in the gospel of Mark, in the first three chapters, people are wrong about Jesus. Everyone's perception, John the Baptist, he kind of prophesied over him, but he didn't really know it for, for you know, wasn't really clear about it. He's going to ask for kind of confirmation in the future chapters. John the Baptist didn't really know. Every person that says something about Jesus is saying he's crazy, he's out of his mind, he's demon-possessed. But look what the demons say. I know you, who you are, holy one of God. You are the son of God. The father says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Demons say, this is the holy one of God. This is the son of God. God and the devil are the only ones who recognize who Jesus is. Everybody else is confused by him. And what's shocking, if you read these texts in their context, when the devil says that, when demons say that, you know what Satan says? Or you know what Jesus says? Shut up. Keep quiet. Don't tell anyone. What's Jesus doing? Jesus is saying, I don't need your affirmation. I don't need those satanic attaboys. I don't need your confirmation upon my identity. I know who the Father says I am, and the Father says I'm the beloved Son of God in whom he is well pleased. I don't need you. I don't need any other validation, external validation. I have the validation from the Father. So Jesus has this iron, solid identity that he can stand up and people can say, you're so amazing. Demons can say, you're so amazing. And he goes, get away from me. I don't need it. And people can go, you're evil, you're wicked, you're crazy. Even his family members, those closest to him, you know, those wounds hurt the worst. And he can say, I don't need it. I know who I am in the Father. A.W. Tozer says, or said, to be right with God 
has often meant to be in trouble with men. Can you take that? Do you live in this iron, solid identity? Can your current identity withstand this type of persecution? What happens when a close family member says, oh, they got religious. They got religious. Don't invite him. He got religion. What happens when someone says, oh, I think they've joined a cult. They spend way too much time with the people at their church. Do you melt? Do you melt under those accusations? Do you bristle? Jesus' own mother and brother says he was out of his mind, but that didn't sway him one bit. Jesus knew that God the Father said he was his beloved son and he was pleased with him and that was an absolute, unshakable, unsinkable foundation for his life. It was his identity. It defined him. He didn't need the approval of those around him. He had God's approval. But now as we move on, we're going to get to one of the scariest but also one of the most hopeful verses in the entire Bible. And again, here we're going to see this, the real Jesus. One who isn't all smiles, but the Son of God who is full of grace and truth. Look at your Bible in verse 28. Truly. Okay, hold on. You know what? Before I do that, I want to, I want to comment on verse 27 again because I don't think I did very well. Verse 27, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, that indeed he may plunder his house. Now, this is kind of a crazy illustration that Jesus uses. <laughs> Think about if I'm, in, if I'm trying to disciple you, and I'm like, okay, here's the deal. Nobody can rob a dude unless he goes in, ties up the dude, then he can rob him, right? That's just kind of a, you're like, preacher, don't, that's an awkward illustration that you're going to use there, right? That's what Jesus is saying. Nobody can raid a guy's house unless you bind up the strong man, the master of the house. You bind him up, you can go in and you can plunder. This is saying, I am the stronger man that go man and binds him up and raids his house. And the strong man there is referring to Satan himself. That Jesus on the cross has bound the enemy, has bound Satan, and now Jesus is raiding his house. He's going after the things that Satan thinks are his. Satan's, often, Satan's called the God of this age in the Bible. When Adam and Eve fell and death reigned, right? Satan reigns in death. But God has, Jesus has bound his hands and now he's going in kind of into the enemy's camp here and he's bringing out men and women. He's calling people unto himself. He's creating a church in the midst of this sinful age. That's what Jesus is talking about. We're gonna get to a, a little more in the future, but let me go on to verse 28. Truly, Jesus says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Stop right there. Did you hear that? This is, first off, this is the good news. This is the amazing grace of Jesus. All sins will be forgiven the children of man, whatever blasphemies they utter. Did you hear that? 
couple things we need to hear from that. First off, Jesus knows, he's aware of every single sin we have ever committed. Every time you have uttered a blasphemy, he says, every time you've used the Lord's name in vain, Jesus knows it, he's aware of it. Every dirty joke, every sinful thought, every impure motive, every greedy purchase, every selfish decision, every time you've wrongly judged someone, every time you were too lazy and too self-centered to go to missional community or to serve your neighbor, every time you chose to operate in your own sinful flesh, instead of relying on the Holy Spirit for power, Jesus says, all of that sin, all of that is sin, but here's the good news, all of it can be forgiven. No matter what you've done, no matter who you've sinned against, no matter how much pain, how much sin, how much darkness, how much rebellion is in your past, Jesus says all of it can be forgiven. This is the good news of the gospel. That Jesus saves and Jesus forgives anyone who comes to him and repents of their sin. He washes their sins away. Though they're red like scarlet, he makes them white as snow. That's amazing news. Now, do you know how that's possible? Jesus doesn't just like, kind of like forget. Like, he doesn't just say, oh, no big deal with our sins. Forgiveness is possible because Jesus has entered into the strong man's house. Forgiveness is possible because Jesus entered into the strong man's house. That's Satan. He's entered into his house and he has bound him. And now Jesus is plundering his house. What does that mean? See, death reigns in life because of because Satan convinced Adam and Eve to rebel from God's authority. And when sin entered the world, death entered the world, and now death reigns in this life. But Jesus has entered Satan's house of death, and Jesus has plundered it. See, Jesus is the stronger man who's stronger than the strong man. But that might not move you. Because when I... The danger of when I'm presenting this side of Jesus or this aspect of Jesus, of Jesus as a judge, the danger is us to throw out the meek and mild Jesus and to say, yes, I like this Jesus. In Revelation, it says Jesus is the, li- the lamb and he's the lion. Well, all of us want to choose a side. I like lamb Jesus. He's nice and cuddly. Or some of us, I like lion Jesus. I like the Jesus that we see in Revelation 20 with the sword sticking out of his mouth, right? I like that Jesus, the Jesus that's coming back on a steed with fire in his eyes and a sword out of his mouth and he's coming back to judge the world and blood's gonna run to the the height of a bridle on a horse across the earth. I like that Jesus. I want me some lion Jesus. But Jesus doesn't judge like that. Jesus doesn't come just as a lion, Jesus doesn't plunder. He doesn't walk into the house of a strong man and just knock him out like any kind of dictator would do. How does Jesus bind the strong man? How does Jesus plunder death? Jesus is the judge who received the judgment of God. Jesus is the lion 
that became a lamb who was crucified on a cross. He's the stronger man who won his kingdom and defeated Satan, listen, by being defeated. Jesus bound the strong man by being bound for us. Jesus wins by losing. He gives us life by dying and resurrecting. See, so we'll never know Jesus. You'll never know him accurately until you see Jesus at the cross. Because it's at the cross where the lion and the lamb meet. It's at the cross where the justice and the judgment of God and the love of God meet. Jesus was judged so that we could be forgiven. He took the punishment that we deserve so we could be forgiven by placing our faith in him. But Jesus isn't a softy. He's not a sentimental therapist in the sky. Jesus is full of grace and truth. He's the lion and the lamb. Look at verse 29. First he says, every sin can be, let's just read 28 again. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they enter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Jesus Christ says, Everyone doesn't go to heaven. Everyone doesn't get eternal life. Everyone doesn't receive forgiveness. Jesus was not a universalist. There's this temptation in us from our own perspective, view the world from our own perspective and see people as kind of mostly good and they're not really all that bad. And that's kind of generally how most people are, honestly, from our perspective. Very few people in this world are all evil or all good. We're mixed, aren't we? We're good and we're bad and hopefully we're mostly good or mostly bad. So what do we do with that? Most people in our society, and I think we're, temp- we're all tempted to do this, we do what novelist and University of Iowa professor Marilyn Robinson does in her latest novel in the Gilead series. Her newest book is called Lila. I finished it on vacation. And in this book, it's been a phenomenal trilogy, I love it, but in this book, she can't square a God of justice and a God of judgment with a God of grace. So she does something that's as old as time. She throws out judgment. God of grace, God of justice, I can't see how a good God could send kind of good and kind of bad people to eternal torment in hell, so I'm going to throw out hell. Let's just get rid of hell. And the problem is, Jesus doesn't let us do that. She throws out hell. How could a good and gracious God send kind of good people to hell? But listen, don't you see what that does? Is All that does is bring judgment out of the heavens down to earth where now I'm the one making the judgment calls. How could God send people to hell? He couldn't. 
Get rid of hell. Bring the judgment down to me. I'm the one who determines what's good. I'm the one who determines what's right for God to do. We are now in the place of God. We are now the ones who are judging what is good or bad. And ultimately now we are the ones who are judging God. Shame on you for sending people to hell is what we would say. We don't get to shake our fist at God and say, this is a judgment-free zone. We are created. He is the creator. He spoke us. We are words walking around. We're being held together by God right now. He is the one who makes the rules. You can shake your fist at, at the heavens and say, I don't believe in gravity. You can shake your fist you, and jump off the roof to your own peril. God is the one who makes the rules because he's the creator. And listen, Jesus is the one Jesus is the one who made the rules. Jesus is the one who followed the rules. When he came to this earth, he obeyed the rules. And Jesus is the one who was crucified for us because we are the rule breakers. So, what is the unforgivable sin? He says right here, there is a sin that you can commit that is unforgivable. It's eternal. Now, I'll be honest, in my 15 years of ministry, I've never had a person come to me and think they've committed this. I, I've heard other pastors say they have, and people get all ang- anxious about it and worried about it. Um, I've never had a person come and say that to me. If you are anxious and worried, maybe I've committed this. Uh, all the commentators I read say, then it's probably not you. This is what this unforgivable sin is. The unforgivable sin is a persistent and unrepentant heart that curses Jesus. It's a heart condition that perpetually says Jesus' ways are evil. I don't like them. I curse him. Now, they're satanic. Now listen, I don't think the the scribes are guilty of this very thing. He says right there in verse 30, for they were, he's giving clarity. What's he talking about? For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. It's, it's key, who's he talking to? He's not talking about, he's not speaking to the tax collectors and the prostitutes and those out living wild. They're not the ones that are guilty of this unforgivable sin. It's the religious leaders. It's the ones who say, they draw a line in the sand and they say, Jesus, you can talk about that, but don't claim your God. Don't step into my line, my life. I want to run my life. Don't step over into this stuff. Don't get too personal. Don't get too close. And they curse him as evil. The religious people. Hebrews 6 talks about another person who tastes of the goodness of the Lord. They're under the instruction of the word of God. They're inside the community of faith. They've experienced, they're watching people's lives get changed. They've heard the word of God. And then they, they live in this perpetual state of unconfessed, unrepentant sin. And it says that they're in, they can, it's impossible, impossible to restore them back. To repentance. If you, why is it impossible? Because it's like crucifying the Son of God again. Hebrews 6 says that. See, this is the, the religious person. What's he saying? Let me just, for all of us here, as I close. Forgiveness is found in no other place and trusting Jesus Christ by faith. 
That's how everyone can get forgiven. And to do that means we have to accept Jesus' judgment of us. We are sinners. We don't live up to his standard on a daily basis. We have to accept that in order for us to come to him for forgiveness. And then Christ sets us free. When Christ forgives us, he empowers us with the Holy Spirit to conquer sin, to defeat sin, to live a new life in community and on mission for him. We're filled with the Spirit of God to fight our sin, to kill our sin. To continually live out this life of faith and repentance. And Hebrews 6 says if a person draws a line and they stop that, Maybe they, they walk the aisle one time at a crusade or at a different church or at a conference or whatever. They walk down, they come to Jesus, but their life is not faith and repentance. They show no fruit of the Holy Spirit growing. Hebrews 6 said that person was never saved. More than likely, that person was never saved. That a Christian fights their sin and grows in, we call it sanctification, grows in the likeness of Jesus Christ. They put their sin to death. They live in community. They make disciples who make disciples. They increasingly place all of their life under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus, what do you want me to do with my money? Jesus, what do you want me to do with my free time? Jesus, what do you want me to do at my job? Jesus, what do you want me to do with my neighbors? That's the life. That's a life lived in Christ of faith and repentance. Now listen, I get it. If you're in this room, you're like, that's hard. Yeah, but I'm going to be honest. I don't think it's as hard for us as it was for Jesus' mom and brother. Being perfectly honest, Jesus' mom had to accept Jesus' judgment on her. Mom, you're a wicked sinner. The only way for you to accept, (laughs) accept me, right? The only way for you to inherit eternal life it's to believe in me, your son. It's, that takes humility. But we all know, when, if big brother stands up and goes, I'm the son of God, believe in me, brother. James is like, you know how many times I pounded you when we were young? You know how many times I, you know, I whipped that apple and hit you in the head? Remember all that? And now you're asking me to come under you? This is why James is like, you're crazy, Jesus. But what we see, one of the greatest apologetics that this is true is when Jesus was, James didn't follow Jesus. Jesus' younger brother did not follow him until Jesus was crucified and resurrected and showed up. And James is like, it takes the resurrection to believe your brother's the son of God, okay? It takes the resurrection to believe that. But James puts his faith in his older brother to receive his forgiveness of sins. So, I don't think it's as hard as Jesus' mom. I don't think it's as hard as Jesus' brother. I'm asking you this this morning, will you believe? Will you put your faith in Jesus? The one way. Will you let him judge you and say that you're a sinner and the only way to go to heaven is to receive the forgiveness that he's already paid for on the cross? Freedom, grace. And this is for believers and unbelievers. We all need to be reminded of this and come back to this gospel truth day in and day out. If you are, what we're about to do is partake in the Lord's Supper. And this, the night Jesus was betrayed, he 
had the last supper and he, he brings his apostles around and he breaks bread with them and he says, this is my body, broken for you. And he's telling them before it's about to happen, they still don't get it, still don't understand it, that this is what it means that you're a sinner. Me, the sinless one, is going to have to be broken to pay your, your cost. This is what it means that you're a sinner. This cup is my blood. My blood will have to be spilled to save you from your sins, but I'm going to do it. I'm willing to do it. I'm going to do it. So every time you meet together, do this in remembrance of me, of this sacrifice that my body and my blood were broken and spilled to pay your price. And this is a family meal. This is what we do. Every week we do this. We have the Lord's Supper because we believe it's powerful. But if you're here and you're not a believer, every week I say baptized believers only. Maybe today you've embraced Jesus Christ by faith. Maybe last week, maybe two weeks ago, but you've never been baptized. Listen, a couple weeks, we're have, we're gonna, hopefully we're going to baptize on Easter. If you, are, if you are a new believer and you want to be baptized, I want you to come talk to me. I'll be at the door. Just let me know. Any of our elders, if they're running around here somewhere, let them know that you want to be baptized. All right? We don't want you just to, you know, if you're just seeking and you're just checking us out, that's totally fine. But if you think, I, I think I've crossed the line. I think I've embraced Jesus and I'm ready to be baptized. We want to do that. And then we want to invite you into this meal, this family meal for baptized believers. It's a great means of grace for us. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your grace and your mercy and your kindness to us in Christ Jesus. It's kind of hard to accept your judgment on us. It's kind of hard to say that we're sinners and there's only one hope for us and that's your grace by faith. Some of us try pretty hard to be good people. We try not to do evil and wicked things. So it's hard for us to believe this gospel that you only died for sick sinners and we must accept that before we accept you. I pray that through the Holy Spirit you would help us accept that today. That you would, as people do that, you would give them all new life. Give them that new identity that Jesus had that can be ours through faith. That solid, iron solid identity that it doesn't matter what anybody says about us because we are your loved and forgiven sons in whom you're well pleased with us because of the work of Jesus. God, the fruit of that is a freedom. I can tell my deepest, darkest secrets to my worst enemy because it doesn't matter what they think about me. I know my reputation in you. That you've said I'm righteous because of the work of Christ. I'm a sinner that comes, that receives forgiveness, and you make me righteous through the works of Jesus. We thank you for that. Father, I pray that you would continue to confirm this identity as we come as a family and we break this bread and we eat your body and we drink the cup. Father, that we would, that this means of grace would move us. We'd be stirred once again by who you are and what you've done and your fierce love for us. It's a fierce love. Not a sentimental, sappy. It's a love that changes us. I thank you for the way you pursue your people, your rebellious people. I thank you the way that you love us. 
Christ's powerful name, I pray. Amen.